Good morning, everyone. Good morning, California time, that is, and welcome to the now international San Diego Ramana Maharshi study circle here as I continue to admit people in while I'm talking. From London, Michael James is happy to join us. He's always happy, and he's here every month of the year. Uh, we're all grateful. We're indebted to him as uh, he allows Ramana to speak through him. He's the vessel for Ramana's teachings for us. Uh, if you are watching us on YouTube, you're welcome to join us live on the first Sunday of every month or any Sunday of the year for that matter. Just join us live by writing to me. My name is Ted. Send your email to newsguy55 at aol.com, N-E-W-S-G-U-Y 55 at aol.com, and uh, I'll send you an invitation to our weekly groups as well as to the group that Michael's here with on the first Sundays. And it always has the same Zoom link, so you don't have to become confused by that at all. Michael, good morning to you and welcome. Good morning. <laughs> we have our first question uh, coming from McNair Ezard. He is uh, a serious student of Ramana's teachings. He comes from a long tradition of moral teachings. And he asks something that's of interest to me, too, when I hear an expression said or stated differently from Ramana. Uh, he says in the book, The Path of Sri Ramana, page 77, the first page of chapter seven, self-investigation, about self-investigation, there is a sentence that reads, in the question, who am I? I am denotes Atman, and who stands for investigation? This gives me the sense that who am I is a call first and foremost to be aware of the true self. However, this seems to be different from an answer given by Ramana Maharshi, given in David Godman's book, Be As You Are, on page 77 there. It's interesting. I suspect that's not a typo. Both are on page 77. When Ramana says in response to a question, one must find out the real I. In the question, who am I? I refers to the ego, which seems to indicate that the question who am I, refers to looking at or being aware of the ego. Michael, can you shed some light on what the question, who am I, actually refer to, refers to and why this seeming contradiction of terms? Uh, yes. Um, it, and the important word here is seeming. It is only a seeming contradiction. It is not a contradiction at all because there is only one I. There cannot be more than one I. The same I, in its in its pure form, is what we actually are. When the same I is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am this body, it is ego. So these are not two different eyes. There can never be two different eyes. If you, that is. Uh, David Goldman's book, Be As You Are, is a compilation from many different sources. Many of the sources are from books like Talks and Day by Day. So we can't be sure how accurately they are recorded. But if you um, if you pay close attention to what is recorded there, um, the, the passage you've quoted, it is recorded, but Bhagavan said, one must find out the real I. In the question, who am I, I refers to ego. So our aim is to know the real I. In other words, our aim is to know what we actually are. 
but now we seem to be ego. So we we start from what we seem to be go, to go what, to what we actually are. Whether that is Bhagavan sometimes described self-investigation as investigating ego. He sometimes described it as investigating the place from which ego rises, in other words, the source of ego. The source of ego is obviously what we actually are. So why does he sometimes describe it as um, as investigating ego and sometimes describe it as investigating the source of the ego? For a very, very simple reason. And it can be illustrated, it can be illustrated most clearly by a simple analogy. Um, supposing you're walking along a path in the dim light of dust with Bhagavan, you see something lying on the path, but looks it seems to you to be a snake. So you say, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, see, there's a snake there. We can't go any further. Bhagavan reassures you, no, it is not a snake. It's just a rope. But still, to you, it looks like a snake. So you're still afraid. So what did Bhagavan do? He tells you, look at it very carefully and, and see what it actually is. If you then ask Bhagavan, which it should I look at? Should I look at the, at the snake or at the rope? He'll say, look at the snake. Because to you, it looks like a snake. But if you look at the snake carefully, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. So there are not two things there, a snake and a rope. What seems to be a snake is actually just a rope. In exactly the same way, there are not two eyes. What seems to be ego is actually only the one real eye. The one real eye is obviously not ego, but it is what is mistaken to be ego. So ego is nothing other than the one real eye. But one real eye is not ego. Ego is just a, an, a false appearance. It's what the one real eye is mistaken to be. So whether you are investigating, there's only one eye to investigate. So why should we worry whether it's ego or whether it's our real nature? If we, it, now we seem to be ego because we are experiencing ourselves mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am McNair, I am Michael, I am Ted, I am whoever. If we look at ourselves carefully enough, the, the adjuncts, McNair or Michael or Ted, will drop off, and what will remain is the pure eye. That is what we actually are. So, as I say, there's only one eye. So we, if we are attending to eye, we cannot go wrong. Now that I seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts, but to the extent to which we attend to it, the adjuncts will drop off, and what will remain is only the pure eye. So though it sometimes uh, seems as if from the talk we, we are distinguishing the, the real eye from ego, that doesn't mean there are two different things. There's the reality and the appearance. But the appearance is nothing other than the reality. The reality is what seems to be the appearance. So there is no contradiction at all. For people who had deeper understanding, clearer understanding of this, Bhagavan talked about, for example, he spoke about Swarupa Dhyana. Swarupa means our own real nature. Swarupa dhyana means meditation on our real nature, own real nature. In other words, meditating on ourselves as we actually are. 
Um, he, he used that term in the 10th paragraph of Nana. He, um, <clears throat> and as I say, he often talked about investigating the source from which we ro rose or the place from which we rose. He used the word place metaphorically in the sense of source. Um, so obviously the place from which we, what rises is ego. The place from which we rise is what we actually are. But if we look at ego carefully enough, we will see what we actually are. So there's no, if we understand it correctly, there's no contradiction. It was only for those who didn't have such a clear understanding, and who therefore asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, which eye should I investigate, ego or the real self? If he said you have to investigate the real self, you have to investigate yourself as you actually are, but, but I don't know myself, how can I investigate myself? So he says, okay, sufficient, just investigate ego. If you investigate ego, you're looking at the snake. If you look at the snake carefully enough, you see it's a rope. Likewise, if you look at ego carefully enough, you will see what you actually are. Is that a clear answer, McNair? Or does anyone else have any? Uh, this is some that, question that is raised so often by people. Um, so if Thank anyone you, has any I... questions about this, please don't hesitate. Sorry, McNair, I was interrupting you. No, that's okay. I appreciate it. That's very clear. Thank you. Yeah, right. And thank you for sending it in, McNair. And, and Michael, I'll say this, and I'm sure there are some veterans here who have been around Ramana's teachings far longer than I have. But I've heard this discussed about the snake in the rope, of course, as many people have probably dozens of times. This is the clearest explanation I've ever heard. If you don't know who you are yet, then focus on the ego. I've never heard that answer given before. But it does sound like it makes perfect sense because as you focus on it continually, it brings you to your true identity. Uh, thank you. Do I have that right? Did, 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 yeah, absolutely. That, that is, there cannot be more than one eye. We are not two different eyes. So when, it, when it's spoken of as if there are two eyes, one is the reality, the other is the appearance. That's the only... That's. Uh, that is, there's only the one real eye. That's all that actually exists. But and it of course, seems was, to be ego. I was caught in that same cement mixer of confusion as well, yeah. uh, following uh, you know the request to to identify in whom are these questions, who are uh, in whom are these thoughts occurring? They're occurring in me. Who am I? I thought it referred to the first part of that question. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got confused until something straightened me out. Something called Michael James straightened me right. out. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. There, there are, there are oh. a couple of passages in um, in Day by Day where it is recorded. But Bhagavan, someone asked Bhagavan something to the effect, what is the difference between mind and the real self? And Bhagavan said there's no difference. The same awareness, when it's looking outwards, it's called mind. When it's looking inwards, it's called, it is what we actually are. Wonderful. Let's go to question number two. Um, that's from Gotham, and I see Gotham here, here today, too. It's a brief question. He asks, what are the characteristics of pure awareness? How does one differentiate between awareness associated with the ego mind versus pure awareness? Um, again, this is this is actually a very uh, closely related question because what we actually are, the one real I, is pure awareness. 
what we seem to be, namely ego, is the impure awareness. But um, the distinction between uh, pure awareness and ego is pure awareness, as the name suggests, it is, it is, it is pure awareness, it is mere awareness. It is not awareness of anything. It is just the pure awareness I am, the awareness of our own existence. But that doesn't mean our own existence is an object of awareness. That is, the nature of awareness is always to be aware of its own existence. It, that is, we cannot be aware without being aware that we are aware. And we cannot be aware that we are aware without being aware that we are being. So it's obviously they awareness always has to know itself. So pure awareness is the awareness that knows nothing other than itself, the awareness that is aware of nothing other than itself. In other words, the what is sometimes described as the content-free awareness. Um, it, it's not a, it, awareness without any content. Whereas ego is the, um, well, the two defining characteristics of ego. As ego, we are, firstly, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body. This body means not only this body, whatever body we currently take ourselves to be. So as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this body, and we are consequently aware of other things. This is what distinguishes ego from its from what it actually is, which is pure awareness, which is never aware, which is always aware of itself as just I am. Never is never aware of itself as anything other than I am. That's why Bhagavan sometimes referred to it as I am I. That is, it, it's awareness that is aware of nothing, but it's aware of itself as nothing other than itself. Whereas ego is aware of itself as something other than what it actually is. It's aware of itself as I am this body. And because it's aware of itself as I am this body, it's consequently aware of so many other things. Um, is this a clear uh, answer, or should I um, should I should I phrase it more clearly? Is that clear to um, uh, Gautam if he's here and everyone else? Oh, I see Gautam, you you are here. Is that yeah. a clear answer? Uh, just one small uh, clarification. Yes. Uh, just during the process of self-inquiry, if you just uh, uh, happen to uh, 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 recognize the pure awareness, uh, how do you differentiate between uh, that pure awareness and the awareness with edgings, especially in the practice uh, when you, if you accidentally or if you okay. just, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, the uh, question came from that angle. Okay. Okay. Um Pure awareness can never be an object of awareness. So e as ego, we can never know pure awareness. Though pure awareness is what we actually are, ego is the adjunct-conflated awareness. So, so long as we experience ourselves as ego, we are mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So the reality of ego is pure awareness, but we don't know that pure awareness in its pure condition, because we, we now know it mixed and completed with adjuncts. So the aim in self-investigation, that is, who, who is it who is investigating? Obviously, pure awareness need not investigate itself because it is, it is perfect as it is. 
what 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 is in need of investigation is ego because ego now mistakes itself to be something other than what it actually is so the the, the one who is investigating is ego ego is trying to attend to its fundamental awareness i am as bhagavan says in um in Maharshi's Gospel, in one passage in Maharshi's Gospel, Bhagavan explains that ego is chit jadagranti. That is, it, chit, chit jadagranti, chit means pure awareness, jada means what is not aware, and granti means a not. So what chit jadagranti refers to is the false awareness, I am this body. Because I am is satchit, the pure awareness. Whereas, uh, um, the body is something that is jada, it's devoid of awareness. When these two are mixed and conflated, as I am this body, the resulting knot, the knot formed by the entanglement of these two, is what is called ego. Of course, pure awareness is never entangled with anything. It's only in the view of ourself as ego that pure awareness seems to be entangled. That is, it's ego that is aware of itself as I am this body. Pure awareness is always aware of itself as just I am. So you have to explain that ego is uh, what is called chichadgranti. Bhagavan says, in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, uh, ahambriti is another term for ego. It simply means I thought. Uh, in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, source means the place from which the ahambriti has risen, you take the essential chit aspect of ego. So when we're investigating ourselves, though we seem to be investigating ego, what we're actually investigating is not the jada portion of ego. We're not investigating this body or mind, any of the five sheaths. We are investigating only the chit portion, namely I am. So the more we attend to I am, the more the adjuncts will drop off. So as we go deeper and deeper in this practice, we begin to experience the, the fundamental awareness I am in a purer and purer condition. The goal is to experience it in its um, pristine purity, in its perfect purity. So we are try attending to ourselves more and more. We're attending just to I or I am more and more. The, the more we attend to I, the more the adjuncts drop off, because the adjuncts are not holding us. We are holding the adjuncts. This body doesn't say, uh, I am Gautam. It's, it's the ego that says, I am Gautam. So it's, it's ego that is holding on to the adjuncts. When we as ego try to hold on to our own reality, namely I am, to the extent to which we hold on to that, the adjuncts will drop off because we're no longer holding them. And eventually we'll come to a point where we experience ourselves as pure awareness. However, ego can never experience itself as pure awareness because ego is the adjunct conflated awareness. So as soon as we, as ego, experience ourselves as pure awareness, we thereby cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. That is how ego is destroyed. Because ego is just a false awareness of ourselves an awareness of ourselves as I am this body. The more we 
attend to I am, the more we subside and merge back into that I am. When we merge into that I am completely, losing all our adjuncts, we experience ourselves as pure awareness. As soon as we experience ourselves as pure awareness, we cease, thereby cease to be ego. This is how ego is eradicated. This is how mind is, is destroyed. Um, so ego can never experience itself as pure awareness. But though ego can never experience itself as pure awareness, ego must try to experience itself as it actually is, namely as pure awareness. But as soon as it experiences itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego. So do not worry about trying to distinguish ego from pure awareness. All you need to do is try to attend to I more and more. As I said in answer to a previous question, there is only one I. Now it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts. In its pure condition, it's free of all adjuncts. So now it seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts. Let's not worry about the adjuncts. What we are investigating is who am I? So it's I that we need to attend to. In other words, we try to attend to ourselves. The more we attend to ourselves, the more our power of attention becomes, the more our mind is purified, the power of attention becomes keener and sharper and subtler, and we are able to discern more and more clearly what we actually are, which is just the pure awareness I am. Is that a clear answer? Sure, sure. <laughs> Thank you. So that's why I took these two questions first, yeah. because they're very, they're, though they seem to be very different, they're actually very much the same. Yeah, they are related. And yeah. thank you for that. And, and two quick questions follow up. The 15 second answer is sufficient. Do you mean to say that once an individual, I'm not quite sure how, somebody who thinks they're the uh, illusory mind body Ted, let's say, uh, thinks they get into pure awareness that the ego is dissolved. Do yeah. you mean to say that the ego is dissolved permanently? That yes. there's no chance of falling back yes. into ego? Yes. yes. One, once you see the, the snake, that the snake is a rope, you can never again mistake it to be a snake. Yeah, yeah. And, you and can understand how you mistook it to be a snake, but you can never, once you actually know that it's a rope, you, you can never again fall into the same illusion. So yeah. when ego is eradicated, it's eradicated permanently. And another follow-up question. And there's quick. another, uh, there's something more to say on this. Okay. Though we, though it is, we have, to, from a perspective of ego, Bhagavan describes the goal as eradication of ego or mananasa, destruction of mind. Actually, what is meant by eradication of ego or destruction of mind is seeing that no such thing as ego has ever existed. In verse 17, Bhagavan says, if one investigates the form of the mind without forgetting, in other words, without allowing one's attention to be diverted away towards anything else, there's no such thing as mind at all. This is the direct path for all. So, uh, though it is, it is described as eradication of ego, um, uh, from, from the perspective of ego, but actually it is, it is the realization that no such thing as ego has ever existed. People often ask this, why, if ego doesn't exist, then why should we try to annihilate it? 
Yes, ego doesn't exist, but it seems to exist. That is, so long as we're aware of anything other than ourselves, we who are aware of that other thing are ego. So without eradicating ego, we cannot know ourselves as we actually are. And we cannot know ourselves, uh, and and we cannot eradicate ego without knowing ourselves as we actually are. They're actually one, one and the same thing. That is, which comes first, knowing ourselves or eradicating ego? We cannot say because they're one and the same thing. Knowing ourselves is seeing clearly, but no such thing as ego has ever existed. Is that okay. clear? Yes, that's very clear. Thank you very much. And you pretty much answered my second question there, too. So we'll go on to our next scheduled question today. And again, this is from McNair. And by the way, just for people uh, who want to know, because uh, sometimes they ask me, why has my question not been asked yet? Maybe they sent it in several weeks ago. The questions get shuffled around every week for a variety of reasons. And uh, in this particular week, McNair sent in two questions yesterday, and they're being asked today. So uh, that's uh, the way the cookie crumbles at times yeah. when we do the process. Can, can I say something here? It is sure. um, Ted sends me the questions and I arrange them in order. And generally, I I give prioritize questions that are that are most closely relevant to the practice, because ultimately that's what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Bhagavan, the sole aim of Bhagavan's teachings is to turn our attention back to ourselves. So. Bhagavan's teachings are nothing if not practical. So if the if the more if the questions that are more closely related to the practice, but I tend to prioritize. Yeah, that's good. And and I'll just add my two cents worth that all the questions that come in and currently I have 20, I think 29 or 28 on the list, they're all good in my estimation. So I'm always happy to see yeah. how you arrange it each week. And having said that, we're going to move on to question number three from McNair. Um, our senses are constantly relaying information to us, um, such as 70,000 thoughts a day for the typical person. How can we maintain the awareness or beingness of I when not sitting still and having to go about daily activities where all these distractions are? The sense impressions are constantly interfering with the ability to stay in that state of awareness. At some point in self-investigation, when abidance and self-awareness is continuous, here's the question. Do the senses become quiescent and stop relaying information? If they do, how do we carry on day-to-day -day activities, like driving a car, for example, or doing our work, or interacting with other people? Um, supposing you live in a big city, and you're walking, you, 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 you have a certain destination in mind. You have to go to a particular, to the bank or to an office or to a shop or some particular destination. When you're walking down the street, there are so many people passing by. So long as you, you remember what you've, what you've set out for, your, your aim is to go to the shop to buy whatever you need to buy. And which shop you're, you're aiming for, you know which shop you're aiming for. So long as you don't forget where you're aiming for, uh, you will reach your, your destination. However many people pass you is not, a, is not an obstacle to you. It only becomes an obstacle if you're more interested in watching the other people 
oh, this person is a, um, a tall person, this person is a short person, this person has a has a um has long hair that person has short hair this person has a strange uh, clothes this person if we're interested in, in different people we'll forget about our, where we're going or oh, what did i come here for i, I we, we'll have forgotten because we're too much interested in other people but if we are really serious that we want to go to the shop to buy whatever we have to buy we go to a shop and buy it but in any number of people passing us by does not distract us because we, we know we, we've got one aim in mind, exactly the same with self-investigation. Thoughts are not, thoughts or sensory input is not an obstacle. It, what is an obstacle is the interest we take in such things. That is, we are distracted by sensory input only if both sensory input interest us when we go to a, as Bhagavan often used to say, if you go to a cinema, you sit for three hours watching a, a film. Uh, look, look, sorry, you sit for three hours looking at a screen. But you never notice the screen because why you came to the cinema to see the, the, the movie, what's going on on the screen. So though you're looking at the screen for three hours, it's as if you never see the screen. You're only seeing the the whatever events are going on on the screen <clears throat> like that everything that is appearing all thoughts all sensory input and everything they are all just pictures on the screen the screen is our fundamental awareness i am that is without being aware i am we could not be aware in anything else so whatever may appear to us it is simply a a superimposition on our basic awareness, I am. That is, who is aware of this? I am aware of it. So whatever we may be aware of, that awareness of other things is a superimposition upon the fundamental awareness, I am. So we have a choice. Do we take interest in this fundamental awareness, I am, or do we take interest in these other fleeting awarenesses, that, um, that the awareness of so many other things that uh, uh, are passing by, uh, constantly changing? Most of us, we have a strong taste in attending to things other than ourselves. The taste or the liking or the inclination to attend to other things are what are called vishaya vasanas. So it's not the sensory input or the thoughts or anything else that distracts us. It's our own vishaya vasanas, our own inclination, our own liking, our own taste to attend to other things. If, if you were really interested in seeing the screen, you could go to a cinema sit there and look at the screen and be oblivious to the pictures because all you're interested in is the screen. But the majority of people who go to cinema, they're least interested. They don't want to sit for three hours looking at the screen. They want to, to see some exciting movie. So it's all a matter of what we're interested in. If we're interested in all these fleeting appearances, that all sensory inputs and other types, sensory inputs are just one type of thought. Oh, that is all, they're all mental impressions. Whether we call them thoughts or call them sensory input or whatever, they're all different types of impressions, like the pictures on the screen. 
Are we interested in these fleeting impressions or are we interested in the underlying reality for fundamental awareness I am? It's up to us. If Most of us, because of uh, we, we have cultivated strong Vishaya Vasanas, it, it, it's our Vishaya Vasanas that are distracting us. So we have to slowly, slowly, by patient and persistent practice, wean our mind off it's Vishaya Vasanas. Vasanas can seem to us to be very powerful, but Vasanas have no power of their own. Whatever power Vasanas have, they derive from us. That is, Vasanas are our own inclination. So if our Vasanas are strong, it's because we've given them that strength, we've given them that power. So how do we reduce the strength, the power of our Vishaya Vasanas? The nature of vasanas is to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by any particular vasana, it becomes strong. We can see this, in the, for example, in the case of people who have obsessive thoughts. Well, all thoughts in a sense are obsessive, but um, uh, some people have particularly obsessive thoughts. And the more they think about that thing, the more they become obsessed by it, they may they, their obsessive thought may be some type of phobia, phobia of spiders or something. The more they, they, they think, the, the more they uh, allow their mind to be moved by that, um, that obsession with uh, spiders, they'll be seeing spiders everywhere, even where there aren't spiders. <clears throat> so it's, it's like that. It's addiction. People who get addicted to drugs or alcohol or smoking or anything else. It's because of the, because the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any type of vasana, the stronger that vasana becomes. People, for example, people who, who have, have been lifelong smokers who want to give up smoking, it's very difficult for them at first. But if they have a strong enough determination, if they understand clearly this smoking is not good for my health, if I go on smoking like this, I'm going to ruin my health. If they have a stronger interest in maintaining their health than they have in smoking, every time the inclination to smoke rises, the contrary inclination, no, let me not smoke, it's not good for my health. So there's a battle going on in their will. If they are wise, they choose the the healthy option to avoid smoking. And the more they do, the more they avoid smoking, the weaker the inclination to smoke becomes. So people who have, who may have been smoking for 30, 40, 50 years, if they are able to give it up, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight, but slowly, slowly, if they're able to wean themselves off that, they'll reach a point where they wonder to themselves, why did I ever like to smoke? It, smoking is a disgusting thing, taking all these uh, fumes into my and pollution into my lungs. Why did I ever do that? So they'll, uh, after some time, they'll even feel an aversion for what previously they had so much attraction for. I mean, they felt so much attraction for. So these, the, I, I mention these examples just to illustrate how vasanas work. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, the stronger it will become. So to weaken the vasanas, we need to refrain from being swayed by them. All Vishaya vasanas take our attention away from ourselves towards other things. The opposite of Vishaya vasana is Sat vasana. 
Sat means be. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. Everything, everything other than ourselves is a vishaya. Even the body, mind, all these things, they're all vishayas. So all phenomena of all kinds are, are vishayas. So vishaya vasana means the inclination to attend to phenomena. The opposite of that is sat vasana. Sat means being, our own being, I am. So sat vasana is the inclination to hold on to our own being and thereby to be as we actually are. So sat vasana is the opposite of vishaya vasana. In self-investigation, we are trying to hold on to our own being, I am. We, the love with which we hold on to our own being is what is called satvasana. The more we hold on to our being, the stronger the satvasana thereby becomes. And the weaker other vasanas become because by holding on to ourselves, we are thereby refraining from allowing ourselves to be swayed by any vishaya vasana. Because Vishaya Vasanas would take our attention away from ourselves. So long as we're holding on to self-attentiveness, we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas. So the Vishaya Vasanas are gradually weakened and the Sat Vasanas is correspondingly strengthened. This is why, this is, um, there are many people nowadays who trivialize the spiritual path. Um, come to me, in a, give me a thousand dollars and in a weekend I'll give you self-realization. I mean, that's obviously an extreme, but I mean, it, not, not all, um, not everyone expresses it in such an explicit way, but they make it seem that knowing ourself is very simple. All you have to see is that your awareness, once you see your awareness, then all your problems are solved. They, they, this is how they, they try to sell their product in the spiritual marketplace. But, Anyone who says like that, they are fooling themselves and fooling other people. The problem we all face, we have strong Vishaya Vasanas. And, over, and those Vishaya Vasanas we have cultivated through countless lives, countless gemmas. So give, uh, weaning our mind off its Vishaya Vasanas is, is, not a, is not an easy... Well, it's easy in the sense all we have to do to wean our mind off that is to hold on to self-attentiveness. But, but because of the strength of our Vishaya Vasanas, our attention keeps on going outwards under the sway of the Vishaya Vasanas. So it takes, a, it takes a, a, a lot of effort and a lot of time to slowly, slowly, slowly wean our mind off its Vishaya Vasanas. That's why this is a very serious path. If we really want to follow this path, we, 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 people ask, how long will it take to get realized self-realization? It will take as long as it takes. We, we can't say. If you're, if, if someone asks, how long is it, uh, how long will it take me to reach Delhi? Well, it depends where you are. If you're just in the, the in the outskirts of Delhi, you'll be able to reach the center of Delhi very quickly. If you're on the other side of the world, if you're in San Francisco, then you have to buy an air ticket, you have to go through, so it'll take you a lot longer to reach Delhi than if you're somewhere nearby. So, um, it, if the whole um, problem is, but in the spiritual part, is the strength of our Vishaya Vasanas. So that is what McNair is asking about here, when he says our senses are constantly relaying information to us. Yes, 
like all the people who are passing us in the street in a busy city, they, they, the, the senses are constantly relaying information. But just like we don't waste our time looking at the people in the street when we're uh, going to our to do our shopping. We, we we try to get to the shop as quickly as possible. Likewise, we if we are trying to attend to I, we don't allow ourselves, let the senses uh, relay any amount of information to us. If we're not interested, it's not going to problem. It's not a problem for us. It's only if we're interested in that information, but we allow our attention to be distracted away from ourselves. So the question is, how can we maintain awareness or beingness of I when not sitting still and having to go about my daily activities? That is, being being self-attentive has got nothing to do with sitting still or closing eyes or anything. Because whatever the mind, speech, or body may be doing, we are always aware I am. So Self-investigation is simply attending to that fundamental awareness I am. So it's withdrawing our attention from other things and focusing our attention on ourselves. Someone once asked Bhagavan, what is the best asana for practicing self-investigation? Asana means in yoga and so on, asana is the posture. So what this person meant is what's the best posture to sit in to do this? And Bhagavan answered, nidityasana. Nidityasana is not any type of yogic asana. Nidityasana means deep contemplation. What Bhagavan implied by that is we need to fix our attention on ourselves. So it's got nothing to do with the uh, with with sitting or standing or walking or it, it doesn't matter what the body, speech, and mind may be doing. We are always aware I am. Holding on to that I am. That alone is self investigation. So it doesn't matter what activities we're doing. It doesn't matter what information is being relayed by the senses. Are we more interested in these activities and this information coming from the senses, or are we more interested in our own being? I am. So um, it's not other things, but it's not anything external to ourselves but distracts us. It's our own liking to attend to those external things that distracts us. Um, and McNair goes on to say, the sense impressions are constantly interfering with the ability to stay in that state of awareness. They are not interfering. Our interest in attending to them is what is interfering. And then he goes on to say, at some point in self-investigation, when abidance in self-awareness is continuous, do the senses become quiescent? and stop relaying information? No, they do not. It continues to... As Bhagavan says in um, in the beginning of the tenth paragraph of Nana, um, even though we share vasanas, which come from time immemorial, rising countless numbers like ocean waves, um, they will all um, be destroyed as Swarupa Dhyana increases and increases. So, Sadhuam sometimes used to give the analogy. If you go to the, if you want to dive into the sea to maybe to get some pearls or something, you don't have to wait till all the waves on the surface cease. Whether the whether the surface of the water is is calm or whether it's agitated by waves, if you dive under the surface beneath the surface, if you dive deep enough, you you go beyond the waves. 
you are not, not affected by the wave because you're intent on going deep within in order to get that pearl. So likewise, if we really want to go deep within, we need not be worried about sensory input or thought or any type of mental impression. We simply turn our attention away from them back towards ourselves. Um, so the, the, the vasanas will continue rising. So long as there's ego, there'll be vasanas. And so long as there are vasanas, their nature is to be constantly rising in countless numbers like ocean waves, as Bhagavan says. But our aim is, is not to be distracted by them, not to, not, to allow our no, not to allow ourselves to be swayed by them. Our aim is to go within deeper and deeper and deeper. So all we should be concerned about is we shouldn't be worrying whether the senses become quiescent or not. Let them become quiescent, let them go on doing their work. What does it matter to us? What matters to us is attending to our own being. Because our own being is the one thing that is constant, the one thing that is ever always existing and shining. I am is always existing and shining. That is what we need to hold on to. Everything else is just a fleeting appearance. And then he goes on to ask, if they do, how do we carry on day-to-day -day activities like driving a car or doing our work, interacting with other people? That is, the more we turn within the more we are thereby surrendering our mind, speech, and body to Bhagavan. He will make our mind, speech, and body do whatever they are meant to do according to Prarabdha. In fact, whether we surrender ourselves or not, our mind, speech, and body will be made to do whatever actions are necessary in order for our Prarabdha to unfold. That doesn't mean, this is what Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother, that means in accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, implying God or Guru, angangirindu, being there, there, being in each place, implying being in the heart of each one of us, artubipan, he will make us dance. So in other words, the mind, speech, and body will be made to do whatever actions are necessary in order for the prarabdha to unfold. That does not mean that all the actions we do by mind, speech, and body are actions we're made to do by God. Uh, that, that would be absurd, because if all actions were actions we're made to do by God, we wouldn't. there wouldn't be any fruit of those actions. Or if there's any fruit, it's God who would have to experience the fruit, not us, because it's God who's doing it. So, in addition to the actions that we are made to do in accordance with prarabdha, we do so many actions under the sway of our vasanas. The actions we do under the sway of our vasanas that create um, fresh, uh, that create fruit, which we later have to experience as prarabdha. So the, the, the point is, whatever, as Bhagavan made it clear, whatever is to happen, is going to happen. No, he, right, how he put it in that note to his mother, and after saying that he who is for that will make us act in accordance with our prarabdha, he goes on to say, Endrum naduvadudu, enmuyachikanum naduvadu. That means what, uh, what will uh, never happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. Nadupadu entade seyinum. Uh, uh, niladu. Uh, um, what is to happen 
will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. This is certain. Therefore, being silent is good. So what he says there, what is going to what is not going to happen is not going to happen, however much effort you make. So we're free to make effort. I can want I can want anything. I can want to um become an astronaut and go to Mars or something. I can want to become the president of the United States or whatever it is. I can make effort to do that, but it's unless it's my prayer, it's not going to happen. Um uh, likewise, what is going to happen. Is we cannot avoid it. It's going to happen anyway. So we will be made to do whatever actions are necessary for the prarabdha to unfold. We means our mind, speech, and body. So it doesn't whether we are attending to ourselves or attending to so many other things. The prarabdha is going to go on unaffected by whatever we uh, want or whatever we do. So if we are wise. We surrender our mind, speech, and body to Bhagavan to take care of, because he's anyway taking care of them, and we cling to I am. So if we are attending only to I am, the mind, speech, and body will be made to do whatever actions they need to do. So our work, our interacting with other people, our taking care of our family, our driving car, or whatever else it may be, all these things will go on according to Prarabdha. But we will be least concerned because our only interest will be in holding on to our own being. Is that a clear answer, McNair? It, it is, Michael. I think it's going to be easier just to pay the thousand dollars and get enlightenment in a weekend. It's so much easier, <laughs> so much easier. But the problem is that's a waste of a thousand dollars because you're going to be no better off. <laughs> this is the only truly worthwhile undertaking. Yeah. Difficult though well, it, it's it is not actually difficult. Bhagavan says it's actually extremely easy. There's a whole song uh, Bhagavan wrote about how easy it is. It seems to us to be difficult. Why? Because we don't want it. Because that means our Vishaya Vasana is stronger than our Sat Vasana. We are not yet, we are not willing to surrender ourselves completely to Bhagavan. We're not willing to let go of everything else and just to subside back into the heart. We still have too much desires, attachments, and so on. So to wean our mind off these desires and attachments, the Vishaya Vasana is about desires, attachments, hopes, and fears in their seed form. So it's to wean our mind off these, but this practice is necessary. So the practice may seem difficult because of our lack of willingness to surrender ourselves, even though actually it is extremely easy. I mean, it almost seems like to me, become self-aware, be in that state and find out for myself how life goes on. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's the only way, that's the only way. But even to say become self-aware, we are always self-aware. So what is required is not self-awareness, because there's never a moment when we're not aware I am. What is required is self-attentiveness. We are always aware I am, but mostly, most often, generally, we, we, we neglect that fundamental awareness I am because we're more interested in other things. So we're all, in the cinema, we're always looking at the screen, 
but we're more interested in the picture than the screen, so we overlook the screen in exactly the same way. Though the self-awareness is always shining, as I am, we are overlooking that because of our interest in other things. So it's a matter of being attentive, attending to, fixing our attention on ourselves. Excellent. Thank you, you Michael. Thank you, McNair, too, for your questions, and Michael. Thank you. By the way, does, does anyone else have any questions about this? What I've been talking about was it clear to everyone? I have a quick question, yes. and that is, you brought a very important word to your description of how we get around these obstacles, uh, and you, the word you used was addiction. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that because I know many who claim. I mean, they're almost arrogant in their in their pride about not having any addictions in their life <laughs> i'm guessing they may very well be addicted to their vasanas and aren't even aware of it. we we are all addicted we are all addicted to attending to things other than ourselves and my question about it is can you bring your vasanas can you bring your addiction to part of your self-inquiry that is the, the what our aim is not to be swayed by our uh, uh, our addictions, our vasanas. So, but wouldn't you it, like to get rid of them? I mean, if you if you brought them into self inquiry, identified them, and analyzed them, and that is not self inquiry. Then you that is vasana inquiry. That's addiction okay. inquiry. We we don't have to fight the vasanas. We simply have to refrain from being swayed by them. If you try and fight your vasanas. It's 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 counterproductive. All we need to do is, by whole, our only concern should be holding on to self-attentiveness. To the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby not allowing ourselves to be swayed by any vishaya vasanas. We overcome vishaya vasanas by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So we're not fighting them. We're simply not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Is my the mom, distinction mom, clear? Michael, I'm going to call on you to make a judgment call here. We're just coming up on one hour. We're a couple of minutes shy of that. Normally, I try to get to people's questions live here, but okay. I was going to ask you one more from Madura. If, if I'm not sure if you yeah. can see it. You know, should I go forward with that question and then turn it over to Okay, the, okay. Okay. So from Madura, and I don't see him here, but maybe he'll show up. Madura Balasubramanian, he says, by Bhagavan's grace, I am able to think or investigate on who am I for a certain period of time every day. But when faced with difficult situations, like I see someone close to me suffering or a caretaker, I don't know how to proceed. And I fall victim to sorrow, depression, and anger towards God. This mind starts to give up and wanders every which way. Question, why is Bhagavan giving difficulties, which is causing me to stop thinking of him? How can I better understand this and surrender to him even in such difficult times? Common question, I think. Yes, exactly, exactly. That is the nature of embodied existence is, is uh, there's so many difficulties we all face. Nobody has a trouble-free life. We all 
have those who are dear to us who become sick or who pass away or something, bereavement and um, needing to take care of, of those who are near and dear to us. This happens to all of us in one way or other. And if we're not faced with one difficulty, we'll be faced with another difficulty. So we need to recognize that difficulties in one form or another are the very nature of embodied existence or samsara. And samsara means this state in which we take ourselves to be a body and consequently we experience all these difficulties. So these difficulties are the very reason why we need to be investigating ourselves. If our life was free of difficulties, okay, fine, let it go on, not a problem. But it's, that is, these difficulties are given to us to make us understand the, the, the need for us to know and to be what we actually are. What we actually are is ever unaffected by difficulties, ever unaffected by pain and pleasure and sorrows and um, bereavement and all these things. It's only as ego that we experience all these things. However difficult our life may be in the waking state, when we fall asleep, we are free of all those difficulties. Why? Because we're free of ego. So it's because of this ego that we experience all these difficulties. So let us take whatever difficulties we face, even the most painful bereavements and everything, let us take these as reminders given to us by Bhagavan to investigate and know what we actually are. Supposing we are bereaved, we lose someone who is very, very dear to us. That's a very pain. I mean, we've all under. I think most of us will have undergone bereavement, and it's obviously it's a very painful situation. But how can we reconnect with those who have departed? Those who have departed cannot be other than ourselves. The, the ultimate reality, what we actually are, is the reality of all things. So it's the reality of them. So if we want to reconnect with those we love. We need to reconnect with what we actually are, because it's what we actually are, but we see as all this. So by going back to the source, we are thereby, uh, even bereavement, the, the pain of bereavement will be solved by going back to our source. So the, the whatever difficulties we face, they all come according to prarabdha. And prarabdha is tailor-made by Bhagavan, that is, in the past, the prarabdha is the fruit of our past karmas, but not just any old fruit of our past karmas. We've done so many countless crores, countless billions of karmas in the past. Um, but, but so there's so many fruit that we have yet to experience. But from that vast heap of fruit, which is what is called sanchita, Bhagavan selects those fruit that will be most conducive to our spiritual progress in this life. So whatever difficulties we face, we should take these difficulties as being the gift of Bhagavan's grace. They're given to us by Bhagavan out of his love for us in order to turn our mind within. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't look upon these difficulties as obstacles. They're obstacles only if we allow ourselves to wallow in these difficulties. Why should we? We know it's, it's, that is bereavement and uh, sorrow and pain and all these things and so many difficulties of numerous kinds. These are inevitable. If we take this body as I, this is the price to pay for taking this body to be I. So 
these should we should take all of these whatever type of difficulty we may face in life we should take it as a reminder to investigate who am i to whom all these difficulties appear that's why bhagavan often um described this practice in terms of he often used to pose the question to whom to whom do all these things appear to whom does this world appear to whom do these thoughts appear to whom do we sensory input appear to whom does bereavement to whom does loss to whom does sorrow to whom does pain appear it appears to me then who am i let's get to the root of it get to the bottom of it we we can never solve the problems of the world by going outwards we know the world is always birth and death it's the nature of life it's it, so there are difficulties and um, that is when we take a body to I to be I we we expose ourselves to wars famines diseases and eventually old age and eventually death it's going to some of us in this lifetime we may escape some of us are fortunate we've never been involved for example in a war. Um, not everyone is, is, is so fortunate, but we are fortunate. But I think many of us have, have uh, unlike our fathers and grandfathers, we 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 were uh, fortunate to have avoided any war. But just because we've avoided it in this lifetime doesn't mean we're going to avoid it in the next lifetime. So the the, the liability to get caught up in pandemics, in disease, in cancer, in war, in accidents, um, all these things. This, we are susceptible to all these things so long as we take this body to be I. So the root cause of all our problems is this false identification, I am this body. When we are free of this identification in sleep, we have no problems whatsoever. We're perfectly happy in sleep without any problems. Um, it's only when we grasp this body as I in waking or dream, but we face so many different types of problems. So these, whatever difficulties we face, these we should take these as reminders given us, to us by Bhagavan of the need to go within more and more and more. Um, I don't know whether um, no, Matra Subramanian is here, but it's, if, if you are here, is, have I answered your question adequately? I don't yes. believe he's here. Okay, well. But his question is ultra common, especially as Yes, said, it is. It is. Uh, he, but this he, is what this path is all this is what this spiritual path is all about. Yeah. Uh so here's the rub with it from my perspective, because I talk to a lot of people in situations like this. I find myself in them. Uh take the difficulties as being the gift of Bhagavan's grace. That's what you said. I understand that. And I take it. I take the difficulties I see in others that affect me or the difficulties in my life as being the gift of Bhagavan's grace. In the moment of the suffering, that's 10,000 times harder to do. And I think that's yeah. what I think that's what uh, Madura was talking about there when he says, yeah. I don't know how to proceed when I fall victim to sorrow, depression and anger. That is, when we are following this path, we all fail sometimes. We all sometimes get carried away by joys or sorrows or whatever. That's nature. That is, when a, when a small child is learning to walk, when a toddler's toddling, they fall over so many times. But the only way to learn to walk is however many times we fall over, we get up again. So, yes, often we get carried away by life's joys and sorrows. But 
we we aren't always facing those joys and sorrows. Let us try more and more to take every opportunity we can to hold on to our being. And then, as Bhagavan says in Nana, by practicing and practicing in this way, the strength of the mind to remain firmly established in its birthplace, in its source, increases. So we need to persevere in this practice as much as we can. And slowly, slowly, we will we will gain the strength to hold on to self-attentiveness in spite of any amount of difficulties that may be thrown at us. That is what we, but it takes hard work. We have to persevere in this. Moment to moment, we need to be trying to attend to ourselves, which I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us will have to agree, yes, we fail dismally. Most of the time we're allowing our attention to be carried here and there under the sway of our vasanas. But gradually, 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 we need to, by persevering in this practice, we need to wean our mind off this, um, off its vishaya vasanas. That is, we need to refrain from being swayed by them. Very good. Does anybody else have a follow-up question on this topic before we go on to any general question for Michael to handle today? Looks like it makes sense, everything you've said about it, as is always the case, Michael. Thank you for that. So uh, I, we've got about 45 minutes left. 50 minutes um, left. Can, can we do just one more uh, question? Because the next question is also quite relevant to this. Okay, good. Because can I can question five today, just in case you wanted to do these five. So uh, I'll advise everybody to put their thinking cap on about a question on some other related or unrelated topic to bring up after you answer this one, Michael. Yeah. This question is from Tim Heath. It's our fifth question for today. Ramana and other well-known devotees have mentioned being vigilant of thoughts arising on the path of self-inquiry. You were hinting on this earlier uh, with McNair. Tim says, Papaji, for example, talked about staying vigilant until his very last breath. Can you please, Michael, speak about vigilance in general? Is vigilance a component of Sahaja Samadhi, the natural state of permanent realization? My confusion, Tim says, arises around this idea because if one is in Sahaja, a permanent state, why would vigilance even be necessary? Right. Okay. Firstly, we need to understand what vigilance is required. We do not have to be vigilant of thoughts arising. What we have to be vigilant of is our own being. That is, we need to attend to our own being. To the extent to which we attend to our own being, we will thereby by not be swayed by any thoughts. So this is not thought investigation. This is self-investigation. So what we should vigilantly attend to is our own being. I am. So long as we rise as ego, effort is required to hold on to self-attentiveness because the nature of ego is to go outwards under the sway of its Vishaya Vasanas. So effort is required so long as um so effort to hold that effort means the effort to hold on to self-attentiveness is required so long as we continue to rise and stand as ego. When we, when due to very keen vigilance, we go within deep enough, 
to experience ourselves as the pure awareness that we actually are, ego is thereby destroyed. Then we can say, we, we can say, I mean, there are two ways of saying it. We can either say eternal vigilance is the very nature of um, of pure awareness. That pure awareness is ever aware of itself. It doesn't, it doesn't require any effort to be aware of itself. So in that sense, we can say it, it, pure awareness is, it, is itself eternal vigilance. Or if we take vigilance to mean vigilance with effort, obviously effort is required only so long as ego is there. Because it's ego whose nature is to go outward. So ego needs to make effort to turn within. When ego turns within keenly enough and thereby uh, sinks to a very depth of its own being and loses itself in its own being, when it's swallowed by the light of pure awareness, then only pure awareness remains. So Sahaja Samadhi, we can metaphorically describe it as the state of eternal vigilance, but it is not. It does that doesn't mean that any effort is there. That is the vigilance of pure awareness is natural vigilance. It is it's its very nature. It cannot be anything other than that, because for pure awareness, there's nothing other than itself for it to know. So it always vigilantly knows itself. We can say, it. or if we take vigilance to denote a state of effort. Obviously, no effort is required for pure awareness to be pure awareness. We are we are always what we are without any effort. It's only a, because we've risen as ego. We need to seem to make it's. It seems to be necessary for us to make effort in order to subside and to be what we always actually are. I I hope that's a clear answer, Tim. If you're here. Yeah, and I don't see Tim today either. No. Okay. Uh, anybody else have a follow-up question to that answer? Okay, thank you, Michael, for that. And uh, I'll ask if anybody's got a question, either to raise your hand or to speak up right now. The opportunity is here. I'm going to call on one person if it's all right, since I don't see anybody rushing to raise their hand. I'm going to call on... Arjan, um, she sent in a question that came in under over, you know, a little bit too late to add it to the list that are subjected to you. Arjan, would you like to summarize your question and ask it now, since this is a time to that seems appropriate? I'm not sure if she's she's here, but I don't think she's listening. Yeah, do you have the yeah, uh, you uh, have the email? Can you read it out? I don't have it with me right now. I could go get it, but if you could just try to summarize it, the main point. It was a long question. If you could summarize it, that yeah, might... yeah, yeah. I'll just. Uh, I think I'll read it out myself. Okay. Got it written. Yeah. So, uh, namaskaram, Michael. Namaskaram. Yeah, I just uh, wanted you to clarify for me that when we practice self-investigation. Uh, what does it mean when you know it's said that we need to turn or uh, you know our attention to a full 180 degrees or even deep within? Uh, for me personally, just simple self attention is what is easily understandable. You know, I can better understand that. However, I do know that I have to practice more and more of it and earnestly cultivate the love for it. 
till attention becomes seamless and natural and i also know that you know there has to be more frequency of self attention whenever our attention kind of wanders off and uh, i get confused with words like turning a full 180 degrees or even diving deep within diving more and more deep within the reason i feel this is because if it is said that the path and the goal are the same and if the goal which is knowing oneself is extremely easy as said in anma vidai then the path that is self attention to has to be extremely easy yeah but words like 180 degrees <laughs> and it complicate things a bit for me oh. thoughts whether it's deep enough or how many degrees am i at assail me i want to know that when attention rests in the self even if it is momentarily uh, isn't it at least for that small moment diving deep within and also a 100 a full 180 degrees uh, i mean how many more degrees than this can one possibly turn okay okay uh, that's a good question that is one thing we need to understand this path that bhagavan has taught us it is a very very simple path but it is also a very deep and subtle path so it cannot be adequately expressed in words once when someone asked bhagavan this is recorded in mahayoga and also in talks um someone asked bhagavan something to the effect of how to practice this and bhagavan replied if the way were objective it could be shown objectively this path is not objective do you need to be shown the way inside your own home so what what he implies by that is this this no words can adequately describe what this practice is but bhagavan has given us plenty of words to point us in the right direction so whatever words are used we need to understand these words as pointers um just to to try to explain what is meant by turning 180 degrees normally that of a normal state of ego is to be facing outwards attending to things above than itself so our aim in self investigation is to turn our attention back towards ourselves so we we have a subject here everything else is out there everything else includes our thoughts our feelings everything it's all external to us so we are when bhagavan says turn within he means that we need to turn our attention away from other things back towards ourselves when in practice because of the strength of our vishaya vasanas and our lack of love to turn within most of us when we start to practice it we though we are attending to ourselves our attention may be only a partial attention because we're still aware to some extent of other things so our attention is not completely withdrawn from other things so turning 180 degrees means focusing our attention on ourselves so keenly but our attention thereby withdrawn completely from other things so it's just a way of saying it it's a, a way of describing it the diving deep within means exactly the same the more we attend to ourselves the deeper we the ego i mean 
the nature of ego, as Bhagavan explains, for example, in verse 25 of Alutanakti, what he implies there is the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to things other than itself, by attending to phenomena, forms, as he calls it. But if it turns its attention back to see who am I, if it seeks its own reality, takes flight, it disappears. So but that implies that the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to attend to subside by attending to itself. So to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent we will subside. So the more we more keenly we attend to ourselves, the more our attention is thereby withdrawn from other things, and the more we thereby subside within. And eventually, when we subside into the very depth of our being, we thereby dissolve there. That is what Bhagavan calls, um, when he describes using the, the pearl diver's uh, metaphor, we have to sink deep within ourselves and retrieve the pearl of Atman. So these are all just ways of describing it. We shouldn't get caught up in the words. We should try to understand what the words are pointing at, what they're indicating. So though we, um, are, we, we understand that essentially all self-investigation is, is fixing our mind on ourselves, as Bhagavan says in Nana. Fixing our mind on ourselves means fixing our attention on ourselves. That's all that is required. But the more we attend to ourselves, the more keenly, I mean, the, the more we try to attend to ourselves, the keener our attention becomes. So the more our attention is focused on ourselves, these words are inadequate. I know, the, I mean, the words, the words have to be inadequate because words are for talking, as Bhagavan said, for objective things. This is a, entirely a sub, not even subjective. We're not even investigating the subject. Truly, we're investigating the reality of the subject. So this is the very antithesis of any objective effort. So it's very deep and very subtle. So the words can only point in that direction. We don't have to understand all of Bhagavan's words. If we understand the general direction in which he's pointing us, that is sufficient. So if you understand what it means to be self-attentive, that's all that's needed. Go on trying to be self-attentive more and more and more. The more you practice self-attentiveness, the more you will naturally sink within, the more you will naturally be turning more and more number of degrees, metaphorically speaking. Is this an adequate answer to your question, or is it still unsatisfactory? Yes, thank you, uh, Michael. That's um, I understood what you're trying to say. It's yes. like, uh, you know, when you're sitting in a class and there's a boring lecture going on, yes. and you, you're you just uh, lost in your thoughts, and you completely yes. miss what the teacher is saying. Yes. Totally, you miss it. You haven't heard, you, even though your ears are fine, your, you know, the words yes. are going inside. And but you just don't pay attention. It's completely missed, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you're just lost in your thoughts. It's just that 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 the turning around of in attention. Exactly. It's right. just that, right? Yeah. And if you supposing it, it's not a boring lecture. Supposing it's a very interesting lecture. Even then, your attention won't be fully on what the teacher is saying because when the teacher is saying something, the lecturer is saying something, it'll trigger off associated thoughts which are very okay. relevant to the subject but because you're thinking of those associated thoughts you're not attending to the lecturer so if we take this as an analogy our attention our aim is 
our full attention should be on the lecture. We should be unconcerned about thoughts, unconcerned about whatever is going on around us. And we should only be trying to listen to the lecturer. Likewise, Bhagavan's teachings are ever shining silently in our heart as our own being. So that is the lecture we need to listen to. By attending to our own being, we need to attend to that more and more and more and more. Even we need to forget about his teachings. But if we are trying to attend to ourselves, we begin to think, oh, Bhagavan said this in Nana, he said this in Uludunapadu. Even that is allowing our mind to go away from ourselves. What all this Uludunapadu and Nana are pointing at, they're pointing at one thing and one thing alone, I. So our sole aim should be to attend to I. The more we attend to I, the deeper we are sinking within, the deeper we are, the more number of degrees we are turning. It's as simple as that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Hojan. And when you say uh, about you describe it as being lost in your thoughts, I translate that as daydreaming. I mean, I got an A plus in daydreaming all through school. It really wasn't until Ramana came into my life and his teachings that I found it joyful just to learn new ways of understanding self. Thank mm -hmm. you. Michael, we have a question now from where'd he go? Ernie, are you here? Oh, yes, thanks. Oh, there you thanks, are. Yeah. yeah. We can't yeah. see you. Uh, can uh, namaste, Michael. Namaste. Um, my question, I guess it more or less is the same as uh, Harjad. I, I guess because um, sometimes we go turning within more and more. And then sometimes my, 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 my mind is thinking, what is really my motive to be really enlightened, to be what we are? But then it becomes harder and harder. And then my motive is really more egoistic, just to be enlightened. And then some, suddenly, sometimes when I'm just chilling and relaxed and having this, just read some book about Dawa De Jing, which is the purest action of non-action. And then just go with the life and just flow and just something. Just give me some sort of rest. And like, there's a tremendous rest. Oh, I don't know. And then in, instead of pushing myself towards this thing, to know, there's a point in me to know who we are, which is really like when I am not concerned about my motive and just asking, like truly, I don't know. It's like, my question is, what is my, it's like, my, it's more like an egoistic thing to, like, I want to be something there. Yeah, but, but all, all yeah. these thoughts are thoughts about things other than ourselves. But whatever motive we have is something other than ourselves. Whatever thoughts may arise of about anything whatsoever, they're all things about things other than ourselves. But one thing we need to attend to is I. Let us not worry about our motive. Let us not worry about any of these things. Who am I? That uh, we we should be. We should. Our mind should be obsessed with only just one aim and one aim alone to know who am i that that is so we it's but this 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 will come only with practice the more we practice the more the more intense our love to know what we actually are will become thoughts will continue to arise and uh 
and we are liable to be distracted by the thoughts, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to be distracted by the thoughts, whatever thoughts they may be. Any thought is a distraction. Uh, we are not to fight the thoughts. We are just to ignore the thoughts. We are, our only aim is to attend to ourselves, to know and to be what we actually are. That is what we are seeking. Motives of the ego, let's not worry about that. Let's leave all those things. Who am I? We are investigating, we're not investigating our motives. We're not investigating anything other than our own being. Everything Ernie, else is a fleeting appearance. Ernie, is that sufficient? Even the touty ching and the pleasant feeling you get while reading it, that's all a fleeting appearance. Every experience is fleeting. The only permanent experience is the fundamental experience, the fundamental awareness, I am. That alone is real. That alone is what we should cling on to. That is the true, the true book that will reveal everything to us. All other books are just words. The words can be useful as pointers, but words can be no, are no more than pointers. We need to follow the, the, what those words are pointing at. If the words are useful words, they'll be pointing our attention at ourself. If they're pointing attention at anything other than ourself, we should leave them and turn our attention back to ourselves. Mm -hmm. If they're pointing at oh. ourselves, we should leave them and turn our attention back to ourselves. That is the word. The, the words that point at ourselves are, are useful. But we shouldn't hold on to the words. You need to, to uh, go in the direction in which they're pointing, namely back towards ourself. Okay, thanks, uh, thanks, Michael. Just, just a quick one, one last. Yeah. Like, we we need to experience this because this is just words, right? But my question is, like, you say, like, who is the experiencer to experience this awareness? Like, who is the experiencer to confirm that? I mean, okay, you said like the experiencer. Yeah, who is who is the one who is experiencing like the because you said the only way we can know it is to experience to be with it. Yeah. So, oh, okay. So you don't really. It's, there's no way of knowing it. Yes. And to to claim it that there's no that I've experienced it is the ego. So this, but you see, it's go other. Oh yeah. There is a way I'm, to know it. We can know we. It means ourself as we actually are. We always know ourself as we actually are. The problem is we superimposed upon that. What we actually are is the pure awareness I am. We always know I am. But we've superimposed upon that I am, this false awareness, uh, I am Ernie, I am Michael, I am whoever. That is what we need to remove. So what we need to hold on to is that fundamental awareness the one real experience, the one permanent experience, namely I am. What experiences I am? Only I am experiences I am. That is what we need to hold on to. What experiences all other things is only that adjunct conflated awareness, I am Ernie. Only when you're aware of yourself as I am Ernie or I am whoever, are you aware of things other than yourself? In sleep, you're not aware of yourself as I am Ernie, so you're there, therefore you are not aware of anything other than your own being, I am. So in a, in, now in the waking state, we need to focus our entire attention just on this fundamental awareness, I am. To the extent to which we attend to this awareness, I am, we thereby subside into that 
and merge and become one with that. And then that alone remains. Because that alone Thanks, is Michael. what is always real. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Mike. Right. Thank you, Ernie. Good question. Uh, and people have been putting their hands up. Uh, Stuart, I'll get to you right after we get to Sophia. She had her hand raised for a while, so I was going to get her next. And we should have time to get uh, both your questions in. So just hang in there. Sophia, take it away. Hello, Michael. Hello. I want to talk to you about uh, they, they, this saying that the self is all. You know, all is the self. And uh, that makes me uh, think sort of when in the beginning doing self-inquiry, we say we go inwards and focusing on ourself. But uh, for example, Anamalai Swami often often says that the self is all, in all of us and all the world and everything, the essence in is the self. So would it be correct that if you go to, I take the analogy of the shop that you were going to in the city and all the people, the self is in everything, right? So in can this um, can you keep your attention on yourself even if you have the outlook but it's not an outlook per se the words are getting me here but you understand that it it gets it sort of grows bigger can you uh, can you explain yes, to me yes, this yes, self yes. is all that, thing that is we we need to understand this clearly in the seventh paragraph of nana bhagavan says yatatamai ulludu apmasarupamondre what actually exists is Atmasarupa. Atmasarupa means the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. So we alone are what actually exists. So we are all there is. In all there is, we are in the sense that we are the only thing there is. So long as we by all we mean many things, that which knows many things is only ego. So long as we are aware of the existence of manyness, what appears as all this manyness is only the one. But so long as we know it as many, we don't know the one. So long as you see the rope as a snake, you don't know it's a rope. So uh, people have a wrong idea, but you have to see God in everything. You have to see yourself in everything. So long as you're seeing everything, you who are seeing the everything are ego. It, that is, it's only when we identify ourselves as I am this person, I am this body, I am Sophia, that you're aware of everything. In waking and dream, you're aware of yourself as I am Sophia, and you're aware of so many other things, so many people and things and houses, mountains, shops, oceans, all sorts of things you're, you're aware of in waking and dream. In sleep, you're not aware of yourself as I am, Sophia. You're aware only I am, and you're aware of nothing other than I am. So I am alone is what actually exists. All these other things are just an appearance. So long as our attention is on the appearance, we are not seeing the reality underlying it. We cannot see the reality by looking outwards. We cannot see the self in others until we see the self in ourselves. The self means what we actually are. We, so we need to see ourselves as we actually are. When we see ourselves as we actually are, as Bhagavan said, there's nothing else to see because we alone are what actually exist. All this multiplicity appears only when we rise as ego. 
Is Thank that you. a clear answer to you, for you? Yes, it is. Thank you. That is, Very there good. were many people who were with Bhagavan who partially understood what Bhagavan said. Uh, said, but they didn't have a very deep understanding. So they talk about uh, seeing the self in everything. Bhagavan never said, see the self in everything. He said, see, your, see yourself. He didn't even talk about the self as if it's something. He said, see yourself as you actually are. So let's stop looking outside. Let's look within, look at ourselves. And then we will see the reality of everything else. And the reality of everything else is nothing but ourself, the one. So, so long as we are aware of more than one, we are still in the state of ignorance. Because what actually exists is only one. And what is that one? You are that. Mm -hmm. So we should hold on to ourself alone, not allow our attention to go away from ourselves towards anything else. That well, is, this is, this is the path of Advaita. Advaita means not to. So what is the correct practice of Advaita? The correct practice of Advaita can only be self-attentiveness. Because only in self-attentiveness there are no two. If you're trying to see yourself in others, you, there's you and the other you're trying to see yourself in. You're in the state of duality, in the state of multiplicity. <laughs> you are so right. <laughs> yeah, you are so right. Thank you. <laughs> right. Thank you very much. And Stuart, you're next. So take yes. it over. Hello, Michael. Hello. Thank you for being with us. Right. Um, yeah, during all of this discussion, uh, some experiences I, I have uh, uh, came to my mind, and I'm trying to uh, uh, either make sense or um, uh, with, with your wisdom may help me. Um, this has to do with uh, what we might call a, a transition from uh, the practice, uh, let's say, half hour uh, and um, uh, 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 this day, let's say, is relatively easy. Um, it's uh, one of those days when it, it just uh, it's easier to be still and then um, focus. Uh, and um, and then it, then it, um, th that will be over, and um, there's a movement uh, back into. Um, uh, uh, some work, let's say. Yes. And there's the experience of uh, uh, carrying uh, um, some of that stillness and uh, 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 the heart uh, um, for Bhagavan. Uh, um, and so there, there is work happening with that, that stillness. Yeah. And, and then uh, it, it seems that there is an awareness when the when that ends and the work becomes with ego or with like doing rather than just having it happen. Does, is, does that make sense? And I'm wondering what is aware when that pivot or that transition is happening? Because there is awareness of that. The one real awareness is the pure awareness I am. Yes. Awareness of anything other than I am is ego. That which is aware of anything other than I am is ego. Yes. So, we, so that's the ego being aware of the arising of the ego. Yes, yes. Ego exists. Ego seems to exist only in the view of ego. 
In the view of pure awareness, there's no such thing as ego, no such thing as body or world or anything. There is just pure awareness. So the one real awareness is the awareness I am. Awareness of anything other than I am is just an illusion superimposed upon that real awareness I am. Because you cannot be aware of anything without be first being aware I am. So the awareness I am is the fundamental awareness. The first rising from that fundamental awareness is the false awareness, I am Stuart, I am this body. And only after you identify yourself as a body do you become aware of other things. So that I understand, the, the, the usefulness of that, that um, false awareness that I just described to you is yes. that when that happens, it's a, it's a, 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 a cue to me to go back. Yes, to, yes. Yeah. That's what Bhagavan said. What does it matter? However many, Bhagavan says everything is just thoughts. All phenomena, all appearances are just thought. The whole world is nothing but thoughts. And he said, What's it, however many thoughts arise, so what? In other words, what's it matter however many thoughts arise? As and when each thought arises, we should vigilantly investigate to whom it arises. That doesn't mean we should ask the question to whom, that means we should investigate ourselves, the one to whom it arises. And then we should hold, having turned our attention back, investigating to whom means turning our attention away from what is outside, back towards ourself. Having turned our attention back towards ourself, we then need to hold our attention on ourself. That is why he goes on to say, if one investigates who am I, the thought, uh, the mind will return to its birthplace and the thought that have risen will subside. So investigating to whom means turning our attention back to ourself. Investigating who am I means holding our attention on ourself. And we continue holding our attention on ourselves until it slips away again. And then what do we do? We bring it back again. Mm -hmm. And by practicing and practicing in this way, the strength of the mind to abide in its source increases, as Bhagavan says in Nana. This is all I'm quoting from the sixth paragraph of Nana. So it's just a matter of this. There's no substitute for practice. Bhagavan's teachings are all about this very simple practice. Whenever our attention is diverted away from ourselves, we bring it back to ourselves. And having brought it back to ourselves, we try to hold on to that self attentiveness until it slips away again. Then again, we bring it back. Is there any importance um, in the distinction between? Uh, the sense of doing versus just letting things happen, because I it, when I have a sense of doing, it, it feels more like the ego is involved. But there are other times when um, it, things just happen, and I, yeah. uh, and and they don't have the effort involved with them. Yeah, that that is when we rise as ego, we identify ourselves with the with the bundle of five sheaves, that is the, the body, life, mind, intellect, and will. So because we experience these things as ourself, the actions of the body, we experience as our actions. 
I am sitting. I am, um, I am, uh, uh, whatever. And walking, talking, whatever. The actions of the speech we experience as our actions. I am talking. I am speaking. The actions of the mind we speak experience as our actions. I am thinking. It's because so long as we rise as ego, we identify these things as ourself, and so the actions of these things are experienced by us as actions done by ourself. But the more we withdraw back within, the more we hold on to I, the more we will see all these things are happening of their own accord without our interference. And this is how we gradually separate ourselves from the sense of doership. The sense of doership will not be destroyed entirely until ego is destroyed, because the very nature of ego is the very nature of ego is to have this sense of doership, because ego identifies itself with the instruments of action. But to the extent to which we withdraw back within, we are thereby separating ourselves from ego, and thereby separating ourselves from the doership. So. As we go deeper and deeper in this path, it becomes more and more clear to us. But life is just happening, and but as we detach ourselves more from it, we see that it is all happening as it's meant to happen. So there can be activity happening without doing or without taking action. Um, that is, things are happening. Things so, are happening. Yes. But so long as we're attending to that, we are identifying ourselves with this body. So again, we, we slip back into the doership. I see. Yes. So we avoid doership to the extent to which our attention is turned within. We get caught up in doership to the extension our attention goes outwards. Thank you. Very clear. Thank right. You. Right. I like that too. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart, for asking that clearly as well. Okay, we've got time for another question, maybe two, but uh, I don't see any hands coming up. Uh, if, if something's, um, I'm looking at names, Mickey, Rathi, Cheryl, uh, others who have been here for a while, uh, Shampa, Glenn, those are new names. If you have any questions that you're maybe reluctant or hesitant to ask, just plow right through that <laughs> and go ahead and ask them. Yeah, and Gotham's got a follow-up question, I think. Go ahead, Gotham. Or was that just a mistake? <laughs> I can't see it, so there you go. Did, did you have a question? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, should I go ahead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to know what's Bhagavan's view on uh, role of Japa in self-inquiry. <clears throat> Japa is repetition of some word, usually a name of God. That is a practice of bhakti. Bhagavan did suggest, if you want to do Japa, the first and foremost name of God is I or I am. So the most useful Japa to do is to do Japa of I or I am. When we do Japa of a name of God, Supposing you're repeating Shiva, 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 Rama, 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 your attention shouldn't be just on that name. What does that name refer to? You're 
every word refers to something. So the name Ram or the name Shiva or the name Jesus or whatever name it is, it's all referring to something. So Japa is supposed to be an an aid for us to fix our attention on God. So when we do Japa or Vai, we are reminded that God is that which is shining in our heart as I. Because I is the, as Bhagavan said, it's the first and foremost name of God. So, so uh, repeating the word I can be a, an aid to helping us to keep our attention fixed on ourselves. So our attention shouldn't be just on the word I, but what does the word I refer to? It refers to ourselves. That is what we should attend to. Is that, a, is that a clear answer? Yes. Very good. But Thanks, ultimately, God. even that has to drop off. Even the rep- Bhagavan, in Ulidranapri, Bhagavan says, without even repeating the word, uh, without even uttering the word I, with the mind sinking deep within, we need to know the rising place of the rising ego. Thank good. you. Right. I think, uh, Ernie, I saw your hand sign up there for a couple of minutes. Do you have yeah, a Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks, Michael. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks, Dave. Just a quick one. Because, uh, uh, Michael, you said earlier that um, there's only one, the, the nature of awareness of what reality is one. And yes. then when you see some others, you know, you're still seeing the objects, like the phenomena, like the bodies. And when you mm-hmm. see yourself as a person, you see other people too. But yeah. when... Um, I was just because my my kind of um, for a few years now I've been reading uh, other things like uh, like Jay Krishnamurti when he was twenty two years old he he said that he saw himself uh, uh, from the from the distance that I was the driver of that car he saw another man um, plowing Tirutan and he was that and he saw the blade of the grass and he was that was it just a form of verbalization even Christ says that what you do unto me is you do unto others so. What they're saying is that they don't see themselves as a person, but they see themselves as one. So long this is a matter we, of verbalization. So long as we are seeing multiplicity, we are seeing ourselves, that is the, the, the multiplicity is objects or phenomena. We are the subject. So there's the separation there. Only when we, mm. when we see ourselves as we actually are, we won't see... Um, drivers of cars or blades of grass or anything else will see only ourselves because we alone are whatever actually exists all the, this entire world is just as Bhagavan says it's just a dream the dream appears in whose view only in the view of the dreamer but right. in in a dream the dreamer mistakes itself to be a person within its dream but it all, the entire dream, including the person the dreamer seems to be, exists only in the view of the dreamer. So, so uh-huh. long as we are aware of multiplicity, so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves, anything other than the one that we actually are, we are still in a state of ignorance. Right. Because I was watching also your, your your dialogue with Bernardo, and he was discussing about the solipsism or something, and yeah. he sees other, he he doesn't see, and so he he sees some more suffering from others. So so long as you, I guess, is the ego that's saying, or is it correct that it's the ego saying, and I see I see myself in others, 
Because yeah, it's only ego. I still see thing. myself as a person. To say as long I as you see, see myself as a in others, there's an I yeah. and there's others. So you've got the okay. separation there. Gotcha. All right. Thank you. And I have one. What we are seeing as others, this whole universe, this entire universe that we are seeing, we are seeing ourselves as all these things. But so long as we're seeing ourselves as all these many things, we're not seeing ourselves as we actually are, because what we actually are is one. When we're dreaming, the entire dream world is nothing but ourselves. We are seeing ourselves as the dream world. And according to Bhagavan, this waking state is just another dream. So yeah. we are seeing ourselves as all this. So long as we are seeing ourselves as all this, we are not seeing ourselves as we actually are. When we see ourselves as we actually are, we will see ourselves alone, nothing else. Yeah, just a quick follow-up. It's very yeah. hard, Michael, because the child, when he was born, when when one is growing up, and and he's uh, he's subjected already to the conditioning of the whole thought as the world. When he goes to the school, he's already bombarded with reward and punishment, and it's very difficult along the way. When he grows up, he he knows nothing but that. I was just grabbing and then started. But you said like when the mind is ready, it's ready or something yes, like yes, yes. the predetermined yes. thing. Or, I don't know. It seems to us that we are pre, but we are we are uh, we are uh, what is programmed or we are uh, preconditioned by uh, we're conditioned by external circumstances. But those external circumstances are our own creation. In the dream, we seem to be affected by all the things we're seeing in the dream. But the entire dream is our own projection. So the, the real conditioning is not coming from outside, it's coming from within. What we are seeing outside is a projection of our own vasanas. As Bhagavan said, Thank all you. that is seen outside exists only within the heart. Ernie, thank you for your questions. And Michael, before wrapping up in three minutes, uh, a question came up in my mind I'd like to pose to you right now that's sort of related to what we've been talking about. In fact, it's specifically related to a comment I think I heard you say about half an hour ago. Uh, you said, as long as you see something other than yourself, and that's how you think of it, you are still living in duality. I work, in quotes, I work at staying in non-duality as much as I can. It's an endless task. There are a thousand things I have to be aware of. But for example, I, I don't, I do something really that goes against my grain of my nature. I don't thank God anymore for anything. I don't express my gratitude anymore to God for anything. Why would I? Why would a God be outside of myself who would be the object or the receiver of my thanks. I don't pray anymore as I was raised as a good little Catholic kid, you know, to fervently rethink of my prayers going through intercessory saints or through Jesus or to the ultimate God Almighty. Uh, is it practical at, work at all, that's my question, to work on non-duality in this manner, or is it just too much of an impossible job for many of us right now? Non-duality is the state in which we are aware of ourselves alone. So the practice of non-duality 
is attending to ourself. To the extent to which we attend to ourself, we are thereby withdrawing ourselves from the appearance of duality back into the reality of non-duality. Regarding God, having come to Bhagavan's path, we should go beyond the idea that God is another. God is not another. God is our own reality. God is that which is shining in our heart as I. The pure I, I divested of adjuncts, is God. As Bhagavan says in verses 24 and 25 of Upadeshundia, in by existing nature, God and soul are just one substance. The adjunct awareness alone is different. Adjunct awareness means we now are aware of ourselves as I am this body. That is what he refers to as adjunct awareness. That is what creates all the differences. So he then says in the next verse, knowing oneself without adjuncts is knowing God, because God always shines as oneself. So we need to go beyond this idea that God is some, some other. God can never, how can God be another? The others exist in the view, if God is another, we're making him into an object. How can God be an object? God is the reality of the subject. All objects appear only in the view of the subject, named the ego. The reality of ego is God. So God is what we actually are. So the greatest prayer to God is to turn back within and silently meditate on him in my, our heart as ourself. So you're meditating on self. Yes. That's what Bhagavan says in verse 8 of Upadeshundia. Rather than anya, anya means what is other, and anya means what is not other. So rather than anya bhava, that means rather than meditating on God as something, God is not mentioned there, but implied, rather than meditating on God as something other than yourself, uh, ananya bhava, meditation on, on nothing other than oneself, that implies meditation on God as nothing other than oneself, with the understanding he is I, that is anatinam utamam, that is the best among all. Perfect. Michael, it's time to say goodbye. It's been a very interesting right. two hours. I think we set a record for the about 10 or 12 questions asked today with great answers. Mm -hmm. uh, much gratitude from all of us for this, and we'll see you in the month of December, December 5th, next. Yeah. Uh, thanks for everything, and have a good month ahead. Okay, right, and thank you.